The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transformed their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. And our guest today is Ken Siegel. He is the author of the best-selling new book, Insanely Simple, The Obsession That Drives Apple's Success. Siegel is perfect to write this book because he worked closely with Steve Jobs for more than 12 years, served as his ad agency creative director for both the Next and Apple. Siegel and his team were responsible for Apple's legendary Think Different campaign, which, as many of you know, was an integral part of Apple's transformation following Steve Jobs' return. He also led agency creative efforts for Dell, Intel, and IBM, and he's interacted with the executive teams of all of those companies. His latest effort was the Ellen DeGeneres campaign for JCPenney that debuted on the Oscars. And then on June the 7th, Siegel will be here in Kansas City to keynote the Accelerated Growth Conference at the downtown Marriott. We're going to be talking a little bit about that conference, too, and what you can expect from Ken there. Welcome to the show today. Well, hello, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's just plunge right into your book. In that book, Insanely Simple, you note that Steve Jobs didn't just build simplicity into his products. He built it into the company itself. And you say that, and, and it's pretty well known, I guess, too, that that was an obsession that guided Apple from the brink of bankruptcy back in the late 90s to the powerhouse that it's become today. And in your book, what you lay out is a plan for saying, you know, Apple didn't just have the market on that simplicity, that any of our listeners today, anybody who owns a company, any corporation, can actually harness the power of simplicity to do remarkable things. So talk to us a little bit about that. I know you've written a whole book about it, but yeah. if you could give us a high-level overview of what what do you mean, how, how can you use simplicity to grow a company? You know, I uh, after I worked with Apple and before, I worked with these other companies, Dell, Intel, IBM, as you mentioned, and it was interesting to me because uh, I would say about 80 to 90% of the meetings I was ever in, in any of those companies, people would bring up Apple as an example of what they wanted to be like when it came to marketing or you know, some some thing that they thought Apple did particularly well. Uh, it's interesting that few companies seem to be able to do it, even though it's written pretty clearly how Apple does what it does. So that's really what my book is about. It's why it's this thing about using simplicity to to prosper uh, and and figuring out how to how to do it because it seems to elude a lot of people. And and the rules are actually pretty simple. If you if I should could use that word again. <laughs> I think we're going to find ourselves talking yeah. about that word a lot today. Um, as a matter of fact, you have 10 what I guess you call thinks uh, that help to lead uh, a company owner or managers, whatever level you're operating at within the company, to being more simple in your approach to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to actually execute on simplicity. 
And if you if you could, could you go through some of the? I know we can't go through all ten here today, but could you go sure. through some of the big ones for us, please? Sure. Well, I start with the basics, which I call Think Brutal, which is named uh, uh, in honor of Steve, <laughs> because <laughs> Steve Jobs was pretty brutal when he wanted to be honest with people. And that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's just about being honest, and it's uh, a pretty basic building block. Yet it's surprising to me how how few companies are as people within them are as honest with each other as Steve Jobs was with the people he wanted to uh, to lead. So that's that's mm-hmm. a, a basic one. But yeah, you think, think that? Do you think the trouble with that it, that people have with that is that um, it's not that they don't want to be honest; it's that they don't want to be uh, they don't want the repercussions because they want to be too nice, maybe. Yeah, I think that's it. a problem, and I, and I do discuss that in the book. That mm-hmm. um, I think uh, you and I tend to be very nice. <laughs> I think it's probably true of most people. You don't mm-hmm. like to hurt people's feelings or whatever. Right. But, but I do think also that it's not necessary to be, to be. I use the word brutal, but I don't think you mm-hmm. need to be uh, mean. I think sure. people appreciate honesty, and sometimes you do have to be honest in a way that might make some people uncomfortable. But yeah. the the alternative is really to get yourself into a more complicated situation later. And Simplicity right. is the thing that yeah, <laughs> helps you move forward. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so um, what are some of the other ones that you talk about in your book? Well, thinking small is a really important one. Uh, as I observed, one of Steve's most uh, powerful weapons was the small group of smart people. He would not throw extra bodies at a job just because something seemed critical. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... Uh, Really, all about putting the most talented people in a in a group and enabling them and uh, allowing them to be fulfilled, feel responsible, and doing so actually encouraged them to work ridiculous hours and spend weeks oh. away from their families. Mm-hmm. But they really felt like they got something out of it. Whereas in some of these bigger companies, you'll be one of 50 people working on something, and and nobody feels responsible for it, and it just becomes uh, more frustrating. Morale goes down, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's one anecdote that you offered uh, that, I, that I read a little bit about, and it was about Lori. It mm. actually combines the Think Brutal uh, piece that you just talked about. <laughs> Somebody named Lori had shown yeah. up in a meeting, and he, you want to tell us about yeah, that particular it was, episode? Uh, it was funny because it just makes you stop and, and take note when things happen a little out of the, extra, out of the ordinary. Um, in this particular case, we had a meeting, or one of our regular meetings planned, which was a small group of Apple people and a small group of agency people. So total people, say around 10, around this long uh, boardroom table at Apple. And there was a woman in our midst who I didn't know, and, and I thought other people knew her, but she was someone who was summoned to the meeting for some reason. So just as the meeting began, Steve was just beginning to to fill us in on whatever details he wanted to fill us in on to start the meeting. And he, he was really about two sentences into it when he just stopped in the middle of a sentence and pointed to this woman and said, who are you? <laughs> like that. And she explained like, well, I'm Laurie and I come from marketing. They want me to be here for whatever. And he just said, mm-hmm. we don't need you in this meeting. Thank you, Laurie. <laughs> and the poor woman had to get up and walk out in front of everybody. And it was just, I felt bad for her as it did everybody in the room. But as you said, Steve was being honest that he had things he wanted to cover in the meeting. He didn't really think she was going to add anything to it, and it was an extra person in the room. So that was him enforcing this small group of smart people standard that he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so sometimes it pays to be 
uh, focused like that and, and just have the people who are going to add the most to it and not be distracted by all of the by other people whose opinions may be relevant in other areas but not in this particular one. So, yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and as I said, you had ten. You've, you've talked about two of them. Think mm-hmm. brutal. Think small. Are there any others that you'd like to share with yeah, our well, listeners this uh, morning? One I think is really important, which is think minimal. And this has to do with, there are actually two levels of this one, but one is really a product issue, and that is if you look around at Apple's competitors, uh, in the laptop area in particular, they offer, like Dell has 19 distinct models of laptops. HP has 49. I mean, it's like ridiculous. (laughs) And Apple has five. And I'm counting in there with the different screen sizes as well. That's why Apple really only has two models, but they have different screen sizes. It amounts to five. But people go into these places. Um, you go into an Apple store. You don't necessarily feel like you have less choice. It's just a very clear choice, and people yes. make their purchase quickly. Whereas with other companies, in the name of giving them choice, they're putting them in a position where they have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And then even then, it's sort of like buyer's remorse oftentimes when you buy a car or something. Did I buy the right thing? There are so many choices you don't know. They have overlapping features, and they, a lot of them look similar or whatever, but they Apple doesn't do that. Apple makes a few things, and they make them really, really well. And it's interesting to note that uh, Apple's philosophy makes them a huge amount of profit. Apple's profit is alone is more than all the other PC companies combined. So wow. it, it's certainly working. Uh, mm-hmm. Those who say that, Apple doesn't give its customers enough choice, really aren't appreciating the business model. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that you say that, because before you pointed that out, I was I was going to say that uh, with Apple, they make the, the products and they charge a premium price for them, but they're obviously perceived as value because people are buying them, you know, by the boatloads seriously. And with some of these other products that you were talking about, you, as you said, there's overlapping features, and it might be a $60 difference. But if you come over here, well, you still have those two features, but you get this other one, but you don't right. have that one. All you've got the three that overlapped, and yet it's you know $40 less. And so you try to do the, you know, to use another analogy, you know, the per ounce kind of, uh, the per unit cost, and, and you just it just right. becomes very difficult to do. So you you give them a good quality product with high perceived value at. Uh, at a price point that people are willing to pay, and as you said, lots of profit is a result of that. Yeah. So, let me let me stop. If you know, we can come back to some of these things mm-hmm. if you'd like in just a minute. But as you're talking about this, it strikes me that what lies at the heart of all the ones that you've mentioned actually is a really acute focus. Whatever it is, whether you know it's on the minimal, it's, it's a real acute focus on which products, which people are going to be in the room, um, which you know, which things am I going to choose to uh, make important and therefore be brutally honest about. So it sounds like it's, it's getting that clarity and being focused that's probably going to run through all ten of these these items that yeah, you outline your book. I think that is true. Uh, again, the, the things I discuss in the book really are, they, they all come from Steve Jobs, or the values he instilled in the company. And I think Steve was all about focus, and that was the amazing thing about working with Apple as opposed to working with a lot of other companies. There, 
there seemed to be a lot of confusion around in a lot of these big companies, and Steve was very good at keeping people, uh, keeping their eyes on the goal and working uh, very hard <laughs> to achieve the goals. But you, you never had any doubt where you stood working in that world, whereas in the uh, uh, these other more complicated companies, there are just a lot of things to sort through every day, and you don't often know who it is you're trying to please. It could be like a, a succession of meetings where you you have to go through two or three approvers, whereas at Apple, the final decision maker was in the room from the start, from the first briefing. And even if it wasn't Steve, by the way, you could work projects for vice presidents within Apple, and they would be at the briefing, uh, and then they'd meet you once with you once every week or so to see how you were doing. So you never got to that end meeting where someone would say, why'd you do that? <laughs> Because they right. they knew what you were working on, and mm-hmm. these bigger companies, you can get to that last meeting two months down the road and find out that you've been spinning your wheels because someone didn't communicate exactly right. Right. Well, one of the questions that I have, it's these are all wonderful uh, tenants uh, to hang your hat on as a, as an owner or as a manager, an executive within a company. But you, you spoke about it a minute ago. You referenced. As a company gets bigger, they get more complicated. Mm-hmm. How can you, and for our listeners today, how, what, what kind of measures can you put in place? Maybe you start out with the best of intentions and you want to cut to the chase on all of the, in all these areas and you want to practice simplicity, but as the company grows and it gets more complicated, how do you, how do you stay true to that as the company gets bigger? Well, that's the, the billion-dollar question for, for <laughs> Apple, I guess. Um, I think it's a question of retaining the small company values. And Steve Jobs has gotten up in the past and said that he proclaimed that Apple was the world's largest startup. He never wanted to get it, let it get so complicated as it got bigger, and he kept those things in focus. And I think, I think what happens in most companies is that when you have one success, you institutionalize it yeah. because you want to keep repeating that success, and over time, it repeats and repeats, and then a couple of genera- generations later, as employees come and go, the, the process has just become so all-important that people focus on more on the process and the idea that's flowing through it. Mm-hmm. And this happened a lot when I worked with these bigger companies where uh, at Apple, you could have a new idea along the way, and, and Steve Jobs would be very happy to hear it, uh, even though it might change the timing, uh, the schedule, or the cost, or whatever. But in these other companies, if you dared to step outside the process, you would get slapped for it, and you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're an obstacle. <laughs> right. Um, so right. they were really, it was interesting that they were really concentrating more on, on executing the, the process as planned as opposed to coming up with a better idea along the way if someone might have one. Right, so, he was open to innovation on the fly, as opposed to planned innovation. Yeah, exactly, and and I yeah. think he was he was all about ideas. It, it sounds almost trite to say it because so many of the places I've worked in say that, but Steve really was, and he really wanted to protect great ideas and not have committees judge them, that kind of thing. Uh, and, or, and again, go ahead. Yeah, I can say in these other companies, you could go through three, four, five people before it finally gets approved. Mm-hmm. And as you said, sometimes they haven't been in at the beginning, and so you get all the way through these things that you these various layers that where <laughs> it has been approved, and right. you get to the final one, and <laughs> the rug gets pulled out from under you. Let well, me ask this. Oh, go I ahead. I was going to say one other interesting fact 
I've never seen this in any other company, and you could say this is unique to Steve Jobs, but I think any leader might want to think about this, and that is that uh, in other agency client situations, we've always had to present to like a VP of marketing first before we'd get to the CEO. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm really not talking necessarily about the titles, but the final decision maker. Yes. There would be somebody who sort of protects that person and yes. looks at the ideas first and says, well, he doesn't like this kind of thing, so I wouldn't show him that. Well, Steve, when he got wind of that, one or two times kind of snapped <laughs> and oh. said, I don't want anyone filtering work before I see it. He said it right to his VP of marketing. Wow. He, he said there might be something in there you you think I don't want to see, but there might be some spark in there that, that, that will mean something to me, and I don't want anyone filtering out work before I see it. So he wanted those people present in the meeting to express their opinion, but he didn't want them sorting through all the work before he saw it. I thought that was a pretty amazing thing. That is, and as you said, it may very well be unique to him because I, I mean, it, it's just something you don't see a lot of. In fact, most people encourage just the opposite, like you said, that don't don't bring that to me. You know what my expectations are. Right. Only bring certain things to me. Yeah. So, so let, let me let me ask you this. Most of us who are already in business don't have the luxury of starting our businesses over from scratch and saying, okay, we're we're going to start with this this uh, premise of simplicity. We're already immersed in our businesses. They're they're chugging along, and there's already processes in place. In fact, you could probably say most of them are probably already complicated. So anyone listening to this who thinks, you know what, he's absolutely right, but how do I dig myself out now? What advice would you give to them? Well, I think that, uh, as you note, if you're a startup or a small company, you can start out with these values. And, and what Steve talked about, about remaining a startup, uh, holding on to the values of the startup, even as they got to be a huge global company, he was simply hanging on to a value that he had from the start. So it was easier, I think. Mm-hmm. When you then talk about bigger companies that have already gotten complicated, what can they do? I think uh, what makes sense is is kind of attacking it by department. You, as a person who wants to uh, start introducing these principles of simplicity, you are, you, you are obviously part of some group within the company, and you can hopefully turn that into a model <laughs> where you can where you can show everyone around you how much better it can be. But what you really need is the top guy to buy into it because I think um, what I always wished, to be honest, when I worked with Dell was that Michael Dell might one day just you know, bang the gavel on the table and say this is the way it's going to be. Uh-huh. And it never quite happened that way because yeah. there are all these different divisions that wanted to do it their own way. But I think it's great <laughs> if a if a CEO or president or someone with power can say we are going to take a fresh look at all of the, these things and, and go about it differently. But I think from within, if you're just a manager or a worker, that you want to uh, try to shine the light of simplicity as best you can, but, but it is absolutely more difficult than when you're starting off with a startup. Sure. But as you said, it, it starts at the top, and that that's what if you're already in a position where your processes rule, then it's up to the person who's in charge to say we're going to stop that. So right. uh, we, we've got some limited time left here, but I want to get in a couple of more things. Okay. You're very well known for naming products. In fact, you are the person who came up with the I 
for the, the iMac, the iPad. The, <laughs> tell me how that came about. How did you come up with it, and, uh, you know, did it take a lot to convince Steve Jobs yeah, to <clears throat> accept that? Well, it, it, it's a funny story because Steve, I think he treated marketing issues no differently than he did product issues, and I think there are plenty of stories about people bringing uh, designs to him or, or model products or whatever, and he rejects them the first time around. Mm-hmm. Well, we brought him the name iMac, and he rejected that twice. And he did it the first time saying, I hate it. <laughs> the second time, he said, well, I don't hate it this week, but I still don't like it. <laughs> um, and then it sort of took care of itself from there. The next day, I found out that he was running around showing some people he had the name put on a model of the machine and and he was giving opinions about it which he didn't tell us he was going to do so that was good news and then suddenly it was just called iMac but the funny part of the story is that he had a name in his head that he was really enamored with and that was MacMan <laughs> and it it took us 2 weeks of those presentations to get him past MacMan he really thought that was uh, a cool thing and oh my you know it's easy. I don't mean to make Steve sound goofy because mm-hmm. he was one of the world's great geniuses, and I have just incredible respect and love and admiration for everything he stood for. But you know, all of us get a little thing in our head that sounds cool, and it right. could well be that had Steve gotten his way and it became Mac Man, maybe it would be just an everyday word, and we wouldn't mind it now. Like remember, iPad was horrible when we first heard it. And now it's just a name. Who knows? We might have right. gotten used to Mac Man, but certainly the thought of it is rather repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, the first thing that came to my into my head was Pac Man. Yes, Pac Man, Pac Man. <laughs> well, that's so. very funny because one of the things he said when he said, "Can you beat this name?" He said, "There are two things you need to worry about, and one of them was that because it looked sort of frivolous, that, that original iMac looked really cartoonish." Mm-hmm. He said, I don't want to throw people off in the wrong direction and have them think it's like a toy. So we we even said to him, like, well, Mac-Man sounds like Pac-Man. Yeah. <laughs> I said exactly that. And mm-hmm. he sort of shrugged it off, like, eh, doesn't bother me that much, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you like something, you like it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get talked out of it. Yeah. Well, obviously the eye stuck, and now we have a whole line of products. Again, going with the simplicity, you know, they're preceded by the eye, the iMac, the iPad, the iPhone, the iPod, all of them. Um, let's talk just for a minute about the Think Different campaign. A lot of people credit you and your team uh, with coming up with a campaign, Think Different, that actually saved Apple. Uh, that's back when, when uh, you know, Jobs had come back and this company was on the brink of bankruptcy, what was behind that campaign and why was it so impactful? Why why that campaign and and how come it, what about it caused the company's turnaround? Well, for starters, I, I like to be a little bit more uh, modest about the effect of advertising uh, than most advertising people are. <laughs> I think it was a great campaign. It did Apple enormous good, but I also think what Steve did with Apple obviously was, was vastly more important great advertising can can add you know energy to something that's there but you have to have something there mm-hmm. <laughs> so but what was behind it was you're you're correct that apple was very near bankruptcy and there weren't going to be any new products for six to eight months because steve had just basically walked in the door and he had met with the engineers and said we got to do something really great but they hadn't even started yet so it was going to be a while so the question was, what would we what would we do in the meantime? And 
the decision was that we need to tell the world uh, why Apple, that the spirit of Apple is still alive and well and great things are going to happen. And Steve wanted to invest in this brand campaign to do that, which, again, most companies on the brink of failure would be circling the wagons and cutting costs. And Steve said, I want to spend and make this point to the world that Apple really stands for something important. So um, really it was it was addressed to um, to three audiences. One would be the people who used to know a very successful Apple like 12 years before but had sort of forgotten the success. And then over that long period of time, a lot of new people came along in the market who, who never knew of a successful Apple. And then there were the people who worked at Apple who needed to be inspired and energized. So the words think different were actually um, uh, written by an art director, which infuri- infuriated all the writers in the room. <laughs> <laughs> but it was one of his great contributions. And I love those words so much because you could have literally hung the, a sign with those words in the garage when they built their very first computer, mm-hmm. and it would have been appropriate. Apple has always been about thinking different. And Absolutely. So it was just a a great authentic expression, whereas, again, other companies set out to do a brand campaign in the first order of business. Usually right. it's like, well, what do we want to be? <laughs> so Apple knew what it wanted to be, and we just needed to express it, and uh, it really did set the stage. The really great thing about it was we kept saying, think different, think different for six months, and when iMac came along, it looked different. <laughs> All you had to do yes. was take a picture of it and put think different under it, and it was just absolutely a perfect payoff to the campaign we had been running for six months. Right, lived up to the billing. Uh, ironically, uh, maybe uh, serendipitously, but uh, I got my copy of Fortune magazine uh, over the weekend, the June 11th issue, and right there, front cover, uh, is Tim Cook, and uh, headline is How Tim Cook is Changing Apple and the New CEO's Daunting Task of Replacing a Legend. What do you think uh, Tim Tim Cook is going to do to change Apple? How is he changing it? Do you think he's going to stay true to the principles of simplicity that Steve Jobs used to make it so great? Yeah, I do. I think that Steve really instilled his values into the company, and Tim worked with him for a very long time and knew how he worked and what made Apple successful. The whole executive team really has embraced those values. So I'm not worried about that. But um, it's also true that things happen um, that are unpredictable and that Steve would mm-hmm. never have had to deal with. And so how they react to those things will be, you know, by definition, different because who knows what Steve would have done. And I right. thought I thought it was interesting that Tim went off to China and visited the Foxconn factories where they were having issues. Yes, and he did. I, I, I wondered to myself at that point, like, would Steve really have done that? Steve said we want workers to be treated fairly and we have all these rules and all that, but he he didn't fly over there and have those meetings and he didn't mm-hmm. hire a, an independent company to assess the situation and, and make recommendations, that kind of thing. So who knows? I think Tim may well do certain things differently, like paying the dividend is another good example. Steve said they would never yes. do that or right. in his time they didn't do it. So I think things will change little by little and they sort of, have to because there's only one Steve Jobs. But I do think that the values are really burnt into the company and that the important things will remain they'll remain true to those values. So I'm confident. Well you were here in Kansas City yesterday. You gave a talk at the ACG at the downtown Marriott. And for those of our listeners who are not able to attend 
How would they get a copy of your book? Well, it's in all the standard places, all the big bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, all the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. So uh, be sure to go out and get a copy of Insanely Simple. It's a great book and a lot of principles that you can apply to your company, no matter what size it is. A lot of great insights here today, and uh, really appreciate the time that you spent with us today, Ken. Thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. Uh, you all have a great week, and we will be back uh, next week with another special guest. You're listening to Smart Companies Radio on Hot Talk Radio. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.